Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer of the podcast, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are inside the mind of an acquirer as John sits down with the Senior Vice President of Strategic Growth Opportunities at Valtech, Randy Woods. But before I get there, as you're going to hear, before joining Valtech and acquisitions, Randy actually sold his company to them. And as a part of the deal, he included a put option. Now, when selling your business, an acquirer may require you to retain some equity or roll over some equity. And a put option is a really effective way to ensure that you kind of force the acquirer to be able to buy those shares off of you at a predetermined time frame. Now, interestingly, this is the second consecutive episode. You would have recalled last week, Tyler Smith mentioned utilizing a put option when selling his business, Skyslope, to Fidelity. Now, to further educate yourself on what a put option is, I have added some resources and information in the show notes section, which can be found at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Randy, who, as I mentioned, sold his marketing agency, non litter Creations, to Valtech back in 2017. Now, he ran this company for 23 years, built it up to 120 employees before selling it. And now serves as the Senior Vice President of Strategic Growth Opportunities, where his role is kind of dedicated to identifying potential acquisition opportunities for the business. Now, as you're listening to today's episode, there's a few things I want you to look out for. The first being is how to make your company appealing to an acquirer. As I mentioned, how to utilize a put option to cover your downside, how to understand the factors that influence how acquirers will value your business how to target potential acquirers who will sell your company as a strategic acquisition, how to avoid deal breakers during negotiations with potential acquirers, and how to ensure your company remains attractive to prospective buyers. Here to share with you what he looks for in a potential acquisition is Randy Woods. Enjoy. Randy Woods, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Good morning. It's great to have you here. And I would characterize this as a two-for-one deal because you both <laughs> sold company, a, co- a company, and I want to ask you about that. And obviously, you now buy companies. So today's episode is part of our Inside the Mind of an Acquirer series. So we're going to spend the lion's share of our time talking about Valtech and what you look for from when you're wearing your kind of acquirer's hat. Before we go there, though, I'd love to just ask you briefly about the business that you created and sold nonlinear creations. This was a marketing agency of some sort? Uh, marketing, uh, we evolved over the years. So back in 1995, uh, university buddy and I decided to start an internet company because that sounded like something promising and we knew nothing about anything, but n- nobody else did either. So it wasn't a bad time to start a company. Uh, we grew that for 23 years. And yeah, we evolved from a company that was primarily focused on marketing so that by 2017, we were a fairly heavy lifting technology company. We had developers in Brazil, in Canada, our markets were in Canada, sorry, in the US and the UK. So our not so secret business strategy was to pay our people in Canadian dollars and Brazilian reais and then charge people in UK pounds and US dollars. It worked out pretty well. Um, and then, yes, we, uh, we sold the company six years ago yesterday, not that I'm counting. <laughs> Happy anniversary, I think. I'll <laughs> Thank you. ask you about that. But t- so, so how big did you get this company? Like how many employees were you guys? About 120 employees. Okay, um, and I think you know the the interesting thing for the acquirer was that we were in multiple countries and had already solved a bunch of the 
uh, intercontinental and intercultural issues that come with that. And so we were attractive to a certain class of, of acquirers that had that sort of global scope to the company. Okay. So I'm a bit confused about what the company did. So it was in mm. marketing and technology. So just, just describe what the engagement was. Yeah. By 2017, we were a specialist in Sitecore content management system, Sitecore CMS, a pretty large vendor. We'd been involved with them for seven years and we were working on some of the largest deals in the world with them. Um, and so we had technologists that were specialists. We had, I think, seven uh, Sitecore MVPs out of a group of 32 in the world. So we were kind of like the best in the world at that software platform. And then we had a bunch of ancillary services as well. So you were reselling that software effectively? No, we were implementing it. So implementing we, did, we did no resell. Okay. So we had people who would show up. Um, as much as the vendors will tell you it's out of the box, it's not. Most engagements lasted more than a year to make this thing work. And so we just helped transform the promise of the software into the reality for the clients. Okay. You, actually, you're the second person I've talked to in the last little while. We just did an interview with Miles Faulkner a couple of weeks ago who did something similar with Atlassian software. So yep. uh, they integrated the software into mostly banks and telephone companies and stuff like that. So bringing the software to life, but they were effectively a services business, which sounds like that's what we were. Yeah, we did. Business. We had some small products, but they were just intended to differentiate us in the marketplace. They didn't really produce any revenue. And so, yeah, we were selling our consulting services on an hourly basis. 120 employees. What triggered you to want to sell? A couple of things. We've been doing it for a long time. Uh, 23 years is a big chunk of your life. Um, we'd been through we were se senior enough entrepreneurs by this point to recognize that windows open and close. And uh, we'd, we'd uh, delayed a couple of times when we probably should have sold the company. And so when the window opened, we thought, okay, we need to look really carefully at this, whether it's the right time. What do you mean um, window open? What does that mean? Sometimes companies in the technology space are valuable. Sometimes they're less valuable. Sometimes companies have more dollars available to buy companies. Sometimes interest rates go up and they don't. And so we we're trying to time it so that we were exiting when there was demand for the company as opposed to having to sell in a period when there were fewer acquirers in the marketplace. What tipped you off that there was demand in the marketplace? Like, What were the signs you saw that this was a good time? A couple of things. So inbound uh, calls. So we you know, had historically received uh, inbound calls from uh, both uh, buy side advisors and directly from from companies, and you can just you know if you're getting three or four of those a week, you're probably approaching the top of the market. If you haven't heard from anybody in two or three months, probably means there's not a lot of buyers out there. So that was part of it. The other piece, frankly, is we were talking to other firms in the space, and we were aware of uh, other companies like ours engaging in the process right now, and just informally understood that they were getting very close to the numbers they were asking, and so it seemed like the right time. That's helpful. And so you went through a process. Did you hire an M&A banker, take it to market? Did you do a... Yeah, tell me about that. Yeah. So we hired a company out of uh, Toronto. Um, and yeah, went to market. We, we went, did both sides. So at that point, we, worked, we had to do something. We knew that we weren't satisfied with the current trajectory. So we looked at both raising capital and selling the company. So I think we talked to 85 firms or something for a year. And we got down, down the road with a few firms, but it just wasn't the right deal for us. Um, and at the end of the day, we were almost done. We decided we were just going to run the thing for a few more years. And, um, and, and our advisor actually introduced us to Valtech. And that turned out to be a really good acquirer uh, for us. One of the motivations to go to market, which I didn't mention, was that we had a lot of long-tenured employees, people who've been with us for 20 years, in some cases, 18 years. And um, they were really talented people with lots of potential. And frankly, we couldn't grow the company fast enough for them to achieve their potential. I kept telling them, I can change your titles, but it's the same job, right? We can't grow the pyramid fast enough to give you a career path. And so 
exiting to the right company where they were able to thrive and build their careers was very important to us. And Belltech was exactly the right fit for that case. Interesting. So you had these 120 employees whom you were loyal to that had brought you to the dance and you were looking at them and they were looking at you and realized the top of the ladder was you <laughs> and you weren't going anywhere. And so eventually it was in an effort to uh, unleash the potential of these employees to be able to kind of grow and, and make more money and do bigger things, play on a yeah, bigger stage. Yeah, we, we just weren't a big enough stage for them to play on. And yeah. so they were going to have to leave. That's what it came down to, right? And Were and you experiencing I, a lot of turnover? Actually, very little. There's a, there's a personal loyalty. In fact, I think actually our turnover rates were one of the things that were attractive to the acquirer. Like we had very little attrition. Um, part of that was because we were in Brazil, and we were, at that point we were one of very few companies operating uh, near shore from Brazil, and we were a really good job if you happen to be in Brazil at that point. So that helped the attrition numbers too. But more generally, it was a sense that we had people who clearly could do things on a global basis, and we weren't going to be large enough for them to become um, all that they could be. That's really interesting. So you decided, and just before I ask you about multiples, kind of how fast were you growing at this stage? We were about 20% a year. We'd had some retrenchment. So we'd gone through some tough years. Um, I would not want to do 2000 over again, because that was a rough year. Yeah. Um, we also had a bunch of clients and an office in Calgary. And uh, the decline of oil didn't help us a whole lot. So we'd had some down years. But on the up years, we were growing between 20 and 30% a year. And the year um, you went to market with Valtech, you were at about twenty six and a half percent or something like. That. Oh wow! Okay, so yeah. a fairly significant top line revenue, revenue growth rate. That's helpful. And so, what was the Valtech deal like? Multiple um, sort of structure. How did you guys do it? Yeah, part of what when I'm talking to entrepreneurs who are contemplating going to market, selling their company, right? It's not just the number; it's the structure of the deal, right? That matters. So it gets very easy to focus on dollars when really it's at least as much about like how, how are those dollars going to get to you. Um, so we went down, we negotiated quite a while with uh, Valtech on some of these issues. So yeah, the deal was pretty simple at the end of the day. It was based on multiples of revenue. So roughly 1.1 times revenue was where we ended up. Um, and then the structure was um, substantial cash up front. I'm going to say 60%. I'm doing this from memory. Um, there was a hold back on that for... 12 months. And then there was a, uh, the rest was uh, two years. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't really an earned out. It was just um, the remainder was shares uh, in Valtech, which we couldn't exercise for two years, after which we had an opportunity to exit those shares. Either if we've been public, could on the public market, or if it was private, we were able to exercise a put. So the idea was that we had cash in hand, um, but then we had a, a second opportunity to grow with the company. Got it. So just let me understand the two-year uh, share uh, piece. So so is Valtech a publicly traded company? No, privately so it's traded. Not. Okay. Yeah. So it's a private company. And so you rolled 40% of your equity, but you had the rights to put that equity, in other words, force Valtech to buy it from you at a predetermined valuation. That's is right. that correct? Okay. Yeah. That's super helpful. And the predetermined valuation, was it the same 1.1 times revenue that you sold the first tranche of equity? Yeah, exactly. So it was basically the floor. Um, our intention and our hope was that it would, in fact, um, increase. And, you know, we've been, Valtech's been quite successful. We were 2,000 people when they bought my company, including our numbers, and we're just pushing 6,000 people now. Wow. So the growth has been yeah. pretty dramatic. And, and the two years, how much did you grow the company in that two years that you held those shares? By the company, do you mean my company or the combined? I mean your company. So that's yeah. interesting because um, we were rolled in. So I don't know the numbers for us individually. 
like I couldn't I couldn't point to what our team delivered just because of the way that we did our accounting. But the company as a whole grew probably seventy five percent over those two years. I see. So you right. got shares in Valtech. In Valtech. Not in your company, but in I apologize. Valtech. Yes, in Valtech. I wasn't okay, clear on that. So the shares were actually in Valtech itself. Valtech. And then you were entitled to sell those shares two years after holding mm-hmm. on to them. And those shares had grown in value because Valtech had grown in size. Yeah. Now, we were only right? able to exit at the put value or else we hung on to them until there was a liquidity event was the way we structured the deal. So basically, there was a floor to the price, but there wasn't an upside, but there wasn't guaranteed liquidity at anything other than the floor to the price. The oh, price. that's super helpful. Okay. So yeah. the floor... Uh, so you, the negotiation was that if you really want to sell in two years, you can, but you'd be walking away from a ton of value because we'd grown the business by 75%. That's but right. But it gave us some you, confidence that if things, you know, went into, did not grow as planned, yeah, uh, we'd be able to exit. Now, listen, it's an unusual deal. I don't know what we've done like that since that at Belltech. Um, yeah, no, that's really where we were and where they were at that time and where they were, they were at in the fundraising efforts. It just kind of made, made sense. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, in fact, exercise that right to put those... Options the forty percent to Valtech's options. Uh, I I don't know. I'm allowed to talk about that. I'm sorry, John. There's some oh, okay. some lockup things. I'm just not allowed to talk about. Apologies yeah, <laughs> totally appreciate it. I had to ask, but I can, I can totally appreciate it if you're not allowed to ask. But it's it is good to know sort of the structure. It's funny. I, I just did an interview last week um, with a guy named Tyler Smith who negotiated something similar where both he and the acquirer had some options. So after five years, he had a right to put his remaining shares to them. In other words, sell them at a predetermined valuation. Equally, they had the rights to buy him oh, out cool. effectively or push to force sale. Yeah. 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 If they wanted to kind of move on. So there was there was sort of a two-way hmm. um, structure, which I thought was was kind of interesting. But it sounds like in your case, you had the rights to to some liquidity if you chose, but it it uh it also meant that uh, you, in this case, would be walking away from some extra value because the company had grown so much. Yeah. And listen, when we're doing deals now, and we did uh, switch switch hats to the yeah. MA side because I play that role in Veltech, we did nine acquisitions last year. Um, in most cases, you know, we asked them to take a percentage of the deal in shares uh, in Veltech and roll that forward, right? And that's about alignment as much as anything else. It's not always that large a percentage, 10 or 20% of the deal, but it's to make sure that there's you know aligned motivations going forward. Um, it's also attractive if you believe the Valtech story, you know, and so far we've done a good job of putting the promise in the story, making it real. Um, it gives you a chance to potentially increase the value of your exit. Got it. So what, what is Valtech? What does Valtech do? Is it just a regular kind of private equity company or what? Not at all. So no, it should be clear. We would be, I think a strategic acquirer in your terminology, although not all our deals are uh, what I would consider strategic. So we're a global digital agency and we talk about focusing on business transformation. And what that really means is that we help uh, organizations um, change the way they operate to take advantage of uh, the digital world. Um, does that help? I realize that's kind of generic, but we do things like commerce. We help organizations stand up uh, very large-scale commerce operations for the biggest companies in the world. We help companies change how their client experience happens. So that can be everything from building the software inside the next generation of car to theme parks to reconstructing your retail shop on Fifth Avenue so that it's uh, you can walk in and try on makeup without actually touching the makeup. So things like that. Got it. And so you've done nine deals in mm-hmm. the last year. What do you look for in a deal? 
That's interesting. So we have we have a target. It's a little soft, but we look for founder-led companies. So companies where the founders are still actively involved and driving the company forward. Uh, usually in the uh, 10 million U.S. revenue to about 40 million U.S. revenue, but there's some flexibility there. We've done smaller deals than that where it's strategic. Uh, we've done larger deals where the opportunity has presented itself and we can make the numbers work. What makes so, a deal strategic? Uh, that's interesting. So uh, we have, it can be one of two things. Um, globally, we do a lot of things. We would like to do all of those things everywhere. So an example would be automotive engineering. So we have a group in uh, Germany, very strong group, large group that has joint ventures with Audi, for example. And um, we didn't do a lot of automotive work in North America. And so a smaller group that allowed us to enter that space in North America was very attractive to us. So that's really about doing what we do, but doing it in the right geography. And so that was strategic. In other cases, it might be an expanding marketplace. So composable software um, is growing very quickly. There's not a lot of companies that can actually execute well in that space. We have more demand than we can fill. And so finding a company that could help us build both our expertise and our bench in that space would be something we might think of as strategic. And when it comes to the structure of a deal, do you have a sort of formula? Like I've heard of some um, acquirers that they just, they have a, a, a formula that, you know, they use a multiple of EBITDA. It's always a 70% 30 deal, three year round. Like they have a, a very formulaic approach. Do you, do you have sort of a, a basic container of the way you would, would make an acquisition? We have a, yeah, we can, I wouldn't think of it as a formula, but more as sort of like guidelines and more like the center point of where the deals usually end up, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we do strategic deals, but we're not like a software company buying a very small software company who's expecting a 40,000 return on their investment, right? Like we sell our hourly services. So when we acquire you, it's your people and the time they build that we're acquiring. And so you're, we're not in a position where you're going to have really extreme valuations that differ from what a financial buyer would buy. So yes, we're generally in the same market that everyone else is for you know, EBITDA multiples or revenue multiples in the services space. Um, you know, broadly, those can really, I don't know, three to 10 times EBITDA, maybe, um, I don't know what the multiples for revenue would be, but say 0.9 to 1.1 or something like that. But of course, every deal is different, depends on the demand in the marketplace and depends where the economic cycle is at. Um, that's kind of like the broad valuation model. But um, as I said, I don't actually do the valuation or the negotiation. So I'm kind of speaking about the market here as much as I'm about Valtech. Well, when we look at the deals that we do, we generally have a few principles. So, right? so there's something like between 60 and 70% uh, of the deal is settled upfront. So cash on the barrel head or equivalent. Um, there's usually an earn out of six months to 18 months, something like that. Um, and again, that um, can be structured in different ways, but the idea is that there's some amount that's, that's held back to ensure our interests are aligned. And then of the total compensation, usually 20% of that is in shares in Valtech, 10 to 20%, uh, depending on you know, how we're structured. So that 10 to 20% can be part of the upfront or it can be part of the, the earnout, but nonetheless, you know, it's part of the deal. That's helpful. And is that 10 to 20% always, uh, do, do you always have a, a put option on that with a floor that you can- As I said, I think, our, I think the deal that I negotiated was unusual. Um, so, and every deal is different. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that it's the common best approach. Um, between the time that Valtech acquired my company and where we're operating now, uh, BC Partners, which is a private equity firm, acquired Valtech. And um, we have a, a different set of guidelines and guidance on how we can actually structure deals. So it's, it's changed significantly since I was involved and when I negotiated my deal. 
Got it. That's a long way, so, John. I don't actually know in many cases whether or not there's a foot involved because I don't always see that level of detail. My job really is about building relationships prior to acquisition, framing it with a business case. Like, why should we buy this company in the first place and convincing the rest of the company that I'm right? And then sort of after the deal has been negotiated, working through the due diligence and the authorization, making things happen after the deal's done. Okay, that's really good. So how do you find deal flow? Like, where do mm. you look for entrepreneurs who would be open to an acquisition? Yeah, three ways. And actually, that's the best part of the job. Um, well, Valtech really values having entrepreneurs stick around. So one way you do that is give the entrepreneurs interesting jobs. And to be clear, we don't often keep the founders in the same position. They don't often run their unit in the company that's happened, but a more common piece is they'll find a different role in the organization that allows the entrepreneur to grow hmm. uh, and add value. And, and the reason for keeping the entrepreneurs around is partly because you get that um, nose to the grindstone energy that entrepreneurs have. Like you just make stuff happen and you worry less about you know the big rules and, and it adds a nice cultural flavor since everybody's already exited once. It's not really about building an empire anymore. It's about making things work and applying your knowledge. So it's a really great cultural thing. Hmm. Um, part, part of the way you do that though is they give you too many jobs. So M&A is only part of my job. I also have, also have the data and analytics team reports into me. Uh, and I have dotted line responsibility for growing our strategy and consulting team. So I have multiple hats going on. But in the acquisition side, and that's the best part of my job, uh, a lot of the work is uh, outreach. So finding companies that look like the kind of company we'd want to work with and having conversations with the founders. And, um, and that's usually fairly easy to do. Um, founders recognize founders pretty quickly. And I feel like those conversations usually are ones that are rewarding on both sides. How do you, I get a lot of emails from 25 year old Wharton grads who hmm. think they're smart and want to buy my company. And, and I, and it frustrates me because when I look at their LinkedIn profile, it'd be like, you know, they worked at REI for two years, they went to Wharton and now they want to buy my company. It's like, I, I, I'm, I'm really happy that you went to Wharton, but you're not going to buy my company. <laughs> um, how do you communicate to a founder that you get them, that you're one of them, that you're one of the time? What is the tribal language that you <laughs> use to indicate to an entrepreneur that you're one of them? That's interesting. I've never, I don't consciously think about this when I make the phone call. Um, but in most cases, I can, I begin by saying that, look, I have exited my company. You know, I, I spent, and it wasn't like three years, 23 years of my life I spent building a company. And so once they've heard that, there's usually a commonality, right? They recognize that we, we share some of the same DNA and probably have had some of the same life experiences, right? You're an entrepreneur, John, you know that um, there are certain types of life experiences you only get when you're trying to make payroll and don't actually have the cash in the bank, right? So... Um, it doesn't take long for that to, to bubble up. And I think it's, um, if I if I could characterize the conversations, they tend to revolve around the business challenges faced by the entrepreneur, as opposed to us aggressively trying to acquire the company. Because most of the time, these conversations don't go anywhere. It's it's almost a sales thing, right? I make lots and lots of calls, and periodically, somebody's at the right point in their life, and we seem like a good option. It, nobody's going to sell their company to Valtech because they like me. But if we enter a process and there's three or four contenders, it helps to have a previous relationship. Uh, and often I can act as a back channel if there's confusion and there's a bit of trust there. I can, I can clarify kind of intent. And that's proven valuable multiple times. I'd love to hear how you do that because uh, you know I heard you when you said, like, I don't do the actual structuring of the deal. We've got an M&A team and they're really good at what they do. So there is a little bit of a 
I don't want to say bait and switch because that sounds yeah. pejorative and, 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 and underhanded. And I'm not suggesting it is, but there is a little bit of like, you're the front end guy, you're the relationship guy, you kind of build the original relationship. But then when it comes to the heavy kind of negotiation, how long's the year now, what's the hold back? There's another team for that. So I'd love to just get inside your world a little bit to understand like, when does the founder call you and say, Randy, this isn't hmm. what we talked about. We, we, we talked about that I was ready to sell and I wanted 100% cash. These guys are talking about 60% cash and 40%. Like, when do you get called back in and how do you deal with that role? <laughs> it's, it's a really interesting question. And look, I, I don't think it's bait and switch because from day one, I make it really clear that I'm right. not going to negotiate this deal with you, right? It's not my company. You know, it's, it's there. I, I work for the company. I'm just an employee now. I don't get to be a founder or entrepreneur anymore. Um, so I, I don't think I've set the expectations incorrectly. And so, if I'm able to, and this doesn't always happen, but if I'm able to build that level of trust, it's it's less about um, we feel like things are going in the wrong direction, and it's more like um, we we don't understand why things have slowed down. We were moving really quickly, and now suddenly we've come to a stop. And I, I don't understand. Like, is this something I need to be worried about? Should we be looking at other options? And I can say, let me find out. And I'll make some phone calls, and you'll find out. Oh, um, somebody had a baby, and that's slowed down the process because the you know or whatever. There's there's always a reason, right? And that and what that does is provide transparency in the process, which is otherwise difficult to do um, without some sort of back channel. So it's unlikely that they'd call me and say, you know, I want more money, make that happen. Cause I can't, <laughs> but what I can do is like, just, you know, give them clarity on the process and what's happening in the context. That's really interesting for sure. I'd be curious. I'm sure people are also curious about why you do this. You've obviously built a very successful company, 120 employees. I'm just doing the back of the math, you know, back of the napkin math and realize that you probably got a decent check out of the deal. So you probably don't have to work or maybe work as hard as it sounds like you work with three jobs and multiple hats. So like, why do you do this? Yeah, it's funny. There are days I ask myself the same thing, John. I, I'll admit, <laughs> listen, after we sold the company, I went to uh, a little island off of Belize to go scuba diving for a couple of weeks. I'd always wanted to go there. It's great. Key Cocker, there's, there's no traffic. It's all like you walk or golf cart. It's a little bit of paradise. And I was there for a week and I was really enjoying myself. But then I realized on day eight that I was having the, uh, the Belkin breakfast special, which was basically uh, eggs, some beans, and a bucket of beer. And I realized I can't do this for the rest of my life. I'll be dead in like six years, right? I got to do something. So that's where I realized that my choices were start a new company or, or re-engage at, at Valtech. And what, I, what Valtech has provided for me is an opportunity to learn, right? The largest companies I'd ever worked for in my life were ones I'd built. So um, to be in a company with that goes from 2,000 people to 6,000 people, to watch the kinds of decisions and problems that come to, to life and how those get solved, how you structure communication among a company that's growing that quickly, um, how, you, how you put together the go-to-market strategies of acquired companies that are in very different spaces and how you operationalize firms as different as like um, uh, creative ideation companies in New York and an uh, automotive engineering firm in Detroit, like how you make that real was very interesting to me. So to a large extent, it's the learning that's keeping me at Valtech. That and the fact that I get to work with some of the greatest people in the world, including most of the people I worked at at my old company, because it's what everybody stayed, right? So it's kind of like I still get to work with people I'd worked with for 20 years in my company. I just get to do it in a new context. What, what do you say, and I'm sure you run into this a ton. I, I just did an interview. It'll probably have dropped by the time our interview is live. 
with a guy named Mark Wright, who built a digital marketing agency in the UK, partnered with Sir Alan Sugar, or Lord Sugar, I think is his actual handle, if you can believe it. But he built it up, uh, and I think there were about 100 and 120 employees, and he sold it. And and he was he he is Mark is a very well spoken, very determined, but very independent minded person. And he got real clarity up front that he did not want any form of holdback, earnout, equity role. Like he is, as he described it to me, a hundred percent all in when he's doing his work. But that's the only way he works. And so he was very emphatic upfront that he did not want an earnout or any sort of kind of, as I say, structured deal. And and I said, but that's un- almost impossible in marketing. Like that's in a like service virtually unheard of. Right. And so I said, how did you do it? And he said, I had 40, like literally 40 different meetings in a year. And I got 40 different no's. Like virtually everyone just said no. And, and he just cut the meeting off. He started to get to a point where he, he would sort of say in the very beginning, like, here are my deal terms. This is my number. And this is my structure. So if we can't agree on those two things, like before they bring the menus, <laughs> we're not having lunch. And that was basically his posture until he finally got, after 40 no's, he got one company that was willing to say yes. And so, again, he, you may have been on that other end of the phone call with entrepreneurs who were like, hey, Randy, love to sell my company, not doing an earnout. How do you respond to that? Uh, well, it's interesting. It's not, at the end of the day, it's not my dollars being spent. Right, so I can't change this. If you, I can't say to you, okay, great, then we'll just do an earn. No, no, love your company, we'll buy it. Um, there are stakeholders and investors that have to be served, and and we have to make the deal make sense to them. And normally, it won't make sense if it's entirely cash up front. I'm not saying it never would. If you, if you, if you're able to move in valuation enough, we might get the deal done with all cash up front. But it would be unlikely because at the end of the day, for us, because you know we're not the kind of a financial acquirer who's going to show up and then get rid of um, half your staff and move the stuff off. Like we're, we want your company to keep operating. In fact, you know, part of our premise is we don't buy a firm unless we figure out how we can make it grow 40% faster than it's growing now. Right. That's kind of our threshold. And so that's part of my job. Again, to- you don't buy a company unless mm-hmm. you can feel confident of a, of a, of a clear path to growing it by 40% in the, in, in what time frame? Faster. So annually. So if they're growing at, 12% a year, we'd like to see them grow at 52% a year. That sounds crazy, but if you think about it, if we, you're buying a 100-person company, we're 6,000 people, and this company does something new, which we don't do, we've got clients. We've got global clients that are in the Fortune 500. They have the need, so it's really a matter of us plugging them in and making things happen. So when I say that, like our expectation is we're going to drive increased revenue growth from any company that we acquire. Um, and so we need the people to stick around. In fact, we're going to need them to step up to a whole new level of seniority because the company is going to grow a lot faster, right? So, um, so the reason we want to have things like earnouts and the, the share structure is so that we've got alignment from the people who are exiting that their company is capable of doing this too, right? To make sure that we're kind of all pulling in the same direction. So that's that's the thinking behind it. Um, it's why the earnouts are quite short, right? Usually six months to eighteen months. Like they're not long term. They're there to ensure alignment, not to sort of um, squeeze out risk. 
it, it, that's not the way that we operate. The, the challenge of having a longer note is that you misalign incentives, right? So the new company is trying to like protect their profit and won't integrate with the acquiring company. And you certainly can't get, we need to borrow three of your people for this pitch. Um, and you know, it, it just, it doesn't work, right? So we find that the shorter the earn out, the better it is on both sides in most cases. Um, but there has to be something there to ensure that we're kind of leaning in the same direction and that there's some, some belief in both sides that we can make this work. And what do you tie earnouts to what metric? Yeah, it depends. That's totally negotiable um, by deal, but usually revenue is the key piece. When you start doing earnouts based on profitability, it gets really tough to get the kind of oh, synergy is a tough word, the kind of partnership that we expect after day one, right? Because you start arguing about how you split the profit between the various entities as opposed to worrying about growing the profit for the company as a whole. And so I think I think structuring earnouts to ensure motivations aligned is an art. It's not easy, um, but it's critical to get right. And I think Valtech to date, has been fairly successful in making sure that everyone's been happy with the outcomes um, on all sides. Let me just push on behalf of my listeners yes. a little bit on this issue of of sort of the synergies pitch, uh, because I've done interviews with people who have sold a marketing agency to a big global kind of hold co, and the pitch is, you know, look, look, we have these thirteen different business units. You know, you you can. Uh, sell your digital marketing services or your, you know, whatever to these, the clients of all these 13 different divisions. And, you know, given all those synergies, you can't help but double the size. And it never happens, right? Yeah. Well, well, here's what happens (laughs) is that is the owners of and the founders of those other 13 divisions are like, Mm -hmm. no way, hands off, keep your hands off my clients. Mm -hmm. I'm not letting you in the door to pitch your service because you know, there's a lot of bleed and there's only one like that's market share and you know, share of wallet. So it is a theoretical synergy that is hard to realize. And I talked to lots of founders who say, yeah, like that was their pitch, but it didn't actually come to fruition. Hey, John, I actually agree with you 100%. I think it's a okay. really hard thing to do. And uh, when I was put my entrepreneur hat back on, right? Like, yeah, it was something where I looked at really hard. Is this actually going to work? Because it's easy to say we have all these clients, you can sell into them. But yeah, like uh, you're talking to the CIO and we sell to the CMO and you don't have that relationship. How are you going to make that happen? Right? That's a hard question and not an easy one to solve. Um, What I can tell you at Valtech is that we've worked pretty hard to bring down the barriers and the incentives for our account teams to uh, take advantage of the new services provided by acquisitions to make sure they're able to start bringing them into accounts. So um, it's not always perfect. It's not always easy, but the growth of the company uh, requires us to do this. So from the very top down, from the C-level down, from the board down, we have to find a way to sell everything that we do to every customer that we have, and that includes the new acquisitions. And so we've structured everything from incentives to org charts to make that happen. And so we're plugging in new services. And listen, this could be the acquisition, but we might also just hire a group of like six new, really smart people in a new space. It's the same kind of challenge. And that's what we're hoping to solve as an organization. So culturally, it's part of how Valtech operates. And I know that doesn't give a whole lot of confidence to the selling entrepreneur because I've sat in that seat, but um, it is the reality. And I can say that as, as somebody who, who walked the walk with my own dollars. Got it. So again, your role is to reach out to entrepreneurs, talk to them about uh, about you know their exit plans, potentially how Valtech could fit into that. One of the things that strikes me about that role is it would be beneficial to have a direct line to an owner rather than competing in a beauty contest with five other 
firms that do something similar to Valtech. I just uh, I just literally dropped an interview with Tyler Smith, who got a unsolicited offer for his company, Skyslope. And it was a SaaS company. So it was like a one of these mm-hmm. really wild valuations. I think they were doing $12 million in revenue. And, and the, uh, the offer was around $60 million, so about five times ARR. So was, again, SaaS, totally different mm-hmm. business model. And he was really tempted by the offer because he liked the guys and he liked, you know, they'd add a lot of value, et cetera. Um, but he showed it to an MA professional and they said, wow, I think we could do better. He ultimately got 82 million wow. for the business. So a $22 million lift by effectively shopping it. Yeah. And so I would be curious to know how you think about participating in a beauty pageant, i.e., an M&A firm on the other side of the table. They're saying, do you guys want to compete to buy this business? What are your thoughts when you see that? First, let me say, I think the majority of deals that we do, probably 70%, um, the firm is in market with a banker, broker, right? Formally going to market. So this is the usual way we operate. But 30% of the time, it's people that we know or we've talked to for a long time. Maybe we've been partnering for 15 years and it just makes sense for us to do something. So mm-hmm. there's a group there. And sometimes it's like, yeah, you reach out to a founder that fits really good. It just makes sense. Our number's the right number and they want to avoid working with a banker. But I will tell you that I think life is better on both sides. If the entrepreneur picks the right banker, it makes it easier for us to get a deal done. Really? Clarity. And I think the entrepreneur actually gets a a more rewarding outcome and more certainty in the outcome. So I actually think, um, and this is a weird thing to say, but that the bankers often bring liquidity and clarity uh, and, and ease of deal that is valuable on both sides. But, and here's the huge criteria, if you're the selling entrepreneur, you have to pick the right banker. And I would spend as much time picking the banker that you use, the broker, as I do the right company to sell to. Because you know they're going to make a lot of money, number one. Number two, like this is... You're relying on them to do the, this thing that you probably only do once or twice in your life, right? Like you're looking on them for advice. So you got to make sure they have the knowledge, they have an understanding of what you need and how you operate and where your values are. So like that selection is as important as the firm you sell to if you're going down that path. That would be my advice for free to entrepreneurs. Yeah. And I'm really glad you shared it. What how would you evaluate a potential M and A banker? Like, walk me through mm-hmm. if you were if you were going to go to sell nonlinear again, mm-hmm. a second time. How would you pick a banker to represent you? Uh, I look for somebody with deep deals, uh, histories of doing deals in my vertical, who understands kind of exactly how my business operates. So, example, we were a services company. I wouldn't want a broker who's really good at selling SaaS deals. Because I think that's really difficult. I'd avoid generalists. I think actually, in my experience, I've seen deals happen faster with firms that say, we do these kinds of deals for these kinds of companies. And by these kinds of companies, it's not just the vertical, it's also the size. If companies are used to selling 500 million revenue companies, they're not going to be very helpful with your $7 million company, whatever it is, right? Revenue, 8, 12. So you need to be really careful, I think, about how you, um, how you ensure their knowledge matches with your needs. Uh, and then there is a much harder, softer piece, which is you want to sit with the person and really think about, understand how they operate, what their motivations are. It's a little bit like how you interview an employee, right? Do they match up with the values of your company? Do they, do they, are they capable of understanding quickly what it is you're trying to accomplish? And do you have confidence that they're actually going to do what they say they're going to do? Um, so if, if that's helpful, that interview process, it's a little bit like hiring a senior employee. You want to make sure that you have like a gut feel that's solid for them and believe that they can do what they say they're going to do. 
One of the downsides of hiring a M&A banker who has a deep, deep vertical niche, and I'm talking about like a six-digit NAICS code niche, mm. like I sell nothing but veterinary practices. And I actually did an interview with a guy who uh, was a private equity group rolling up veterinary practices. And he said, <laughs> working with an M&A professional whose job is exclusively sell-side deals in of selling veterinary clinics to the two private equity groups that are rolling up veterinary clinics. The challenge with that is it's both good and bad. There's a prevailing valuation multiple among veterinary clinics, and it is, it's the market rate. People know what it is, and it's driven by a couple of different variables. And if you're an entrepreneur and you want to sell your veterinary clinic to that kind of buyer at that kind of multiple, though that individual M&A professional is the person in town to do that deal for you. However, because they make a living selling companies to those two buyers, they will never push hard for your deal for fear of alienating those two buyers for the next deal in town, right? So now that's a very, very specific, I'm talking about a six-digit NAICS code, Mm -hmm. veterinary clinics, and there are two (laughs) giant private equity groups rolling up veterinary clinics. And so that's a, I mean, that's like, obviously marketing services is a very, you know, there's tons of buyers for marketing services companies. But I'd just be curious if you ever run into M&A professionals who are too cozy with the buyers and are too friendly with huh. you as the the buying entity. That's it's really I hadn't thought of a world where the universe of buyers was so small because you're right mm. you do get into a thing where like the relationship with the buyer is more important than the relationship with the seller for, for a professional. Yeah. That's that would be super concerning to me as an entrepreneur exiting. In our case, the universe feels almost uh, infinite. I think every deal we're in, we see three or four new contenders we didn't know existed. So it's not you've got lots of yeah right. So yeah. it's not the same context. Um, having said that, I think your your point about blinders coming on to somebody who focuses on a vertical is interesting because you're right. It is possible that, okay, you're this kind of company, you're doing services for telecom co's and, and you, you want to sell to people who buy those kind of companies, but maybe, maybe you're more attractive to somebody who wants to enter that space. Who's not a, not a standard buyer, not a normal buyer. And maybe your broker won't know them. Um, and that's a risk you're going to take, right? If there's if there's a better buyer who's not part of the universe of regular buyers, then your broker's not likely to bring them to the table. I'd actually suggest that's the entrepreneur's job, right? Reach out there and just see, understand who else might be a potential buyer who's not on the, like the the regular candidates list. Because I don't I don't know that most brokers who specialize in vertical will be able to sort of take you horizontally across the whole economy. I don't know if that made sense what I just said. Yeah, yeah, no, okay. for sure, for sure. How do you um, how do you evaluate entrepreneurs' responses to your reach out? So you hmm. reach out to an owner. Um, what are you looking for in their response to that initial reach out? Well, first, um, it's great when they actually return my email. So that counts as a win. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a conversation. And really, the conversation is about where are you at in the life cycle of your company? And that ranges from... I have a very specific plan. I'm going to exit in 15 years at this multiple and we're on our path to get there. And I get that answer a lot, right? And it's like, great, excellent. You know, I'll call you in two years and we'll see where you're at, right? And we'll, <laughs> we'll stay in touch. And that actually is great. We, we actually continue that conversation and I you know, put it in my calendar and we talk and, you know, there are the potential that whenever they reach their number, we're there. And a couple of those are actually coming to fruition. So there's that. At the other end, you've got people who have never thought about selling their company. 
it's never entered their mind that they should, have never really um, reached the point in their career where they've internalized that someday they won't be running the company, you know, because they'll be dead if nothing else. So um, that conversation often sparks a series of conversations that look more like coaching than they do like outreach. And I'm not sure we've done a deal with that group yet. But I think they're valuable for them and valuable for me because I can point out some of the lessons I've learned uh, along the way. So that's the range of them. Um, in terms of what I look for for us moving forward, it's like some coincidence of like, you seem like somebody who has a mature organization, have processes in place and are, are buyable. Uh, and are also at the point in your career where you're thinking, yeah, maybe it is time for us to, to look at uh, making a change. So those are the two things that push the conversation forward. Right. So if you hear that, you know, okay, that's probably someone I could I should sort of lean yeah. into. What is the opposite? What what do you hear, see, and behavior of entrepreneurs that is a huge red flag for you that you walk the other way? Oh, there's a few of them. Uh, you can tell pretty quickly sometimes if they um, have expectations of the value that are out of line with the market. And um, sometimes kind of stuff put, you hear? Well, sometimes they'll tell you a number. Like I'm only selling my company for X and X is like, 10 times what the market will, will bear, right? And that's particularly true in high growth markets where they've heard that some SaaS companies sold at you know 12 times revenue and they haven't really clued in that they're not a SaaS company, they're an advisor in the SaaS market, right? And so it's like one times revenue. So that, that's a conversation that ends pretty quickly. Um, sometimes it's a no. Sometimes you discover very quickly as well that they really don't have a second in command, that don't have any structure beneath them at all. They're running the company as a sole individual and all the decisions are made by them. And that's really hard for us or anybody else to buy because you know if that person gets hit by a bus or that proverbial bus hits a lot of people. So they have a stroke or something, <laughs> right? Uh, suddenly you've just lost all the value in the organization. So that makes it really tough. Um, I'd also suggest that client concentration for small companies is a real killer in our space. So if 65% of your revenue comes from one client, it's really hard for us to proceed with a deal because there's just so much risk around that client and the relationship. And maybe they like working with small companies. Now they're not a small company that goes away. So that's another one where it's very hard for us to get a deal done. Um, those are probably the biggest pieces. Sometimes it's the personality thing. Like, um, I originally got into the M&A activity at Valtech because I heard that Valtech was going down a road with a client, with a, sorry, a prospective acquisition. I knew the acquisition. I really didn't like the people and didn't want them to be part of the company I was working for. So I suggested an alternative acquisition for them, um, which, <laughs> right, we actually got, which we actually got done. So, <laughs> so really, so after that, it was like, oh, congratulations. Now you're like, yeah. you know, you raised your hand, so you're involved in this, right? But there's a piece there where if the culture fit on the first conversation is so clearly off, there's not a lot of point on either side in rolling forward. What would, what would, what would be a, an indicator to you of a, a mismatch in culture fit? Like, uh, arrogance something. is sometimes a big piece. Um, Look, you should be confident in what you do and what you can do. Um, but you should equally have some context for what you haven't yet accomplished and that other people in the world have expertise you may not have. And, uh, and not all entrepreneurs, um, it's maybe an occupational hazard that we have big egos, but there's a, there's a recognition that you're not everything, um, that's sometimes a, a deal killer. Uh, sometimes it's a, you know, we are a financially rigorous organization. And sometimes you realize that this is really a lifestyle business and not, they're not really interested in growing this company. And they're not, they're not really even super interested in optimizing profits. They just want to be, you know, hang out with their friends and go to work. Well, that's, it's great. And God bless them. And honestly, that's a great way to live your life. I'm, I'm not, it's just not viable by us, right? So that might give you some sense of where the fits aren't immediate. What would indicate to you that a business is a lifestyle business? Um, you ask somebody what their, I don't know, trailing 12 months EBITDA is and they don't know. Um, right. There's a good example. Uh, you ask what the revenue growth has been and they say, well, 
you know, some years it's 20%, some years it's negative 20%. I don't know what we'll do this year. They don't have a budget in place. They can't tell you what the year is going to look like. Um, you know, they don't, they don't really have a sense of um, uh, what their employee attrition rate is because they really haven't had any. So it's like, um, th those are examples, but it's more as much in the tone as it is in the content of what's said. Describe the tone. Um, there is a, uh, a level of professionalism that you have to have to operate a company past a certain level when you've got to, say, manage a team of managers. And somehow that translates into the way that people communicate. Um, when it's a sort of lifestyle business, that tends to be, and it's not formality. I'm not talking about like sort of you know, super formal knowledge, but it's just an awareness of how your business operates and the ability to convey that in a compelling way that indicates you've reached a certain level of maturity. When you're unable to have a conversation that, um, that revolves around the business itself and instead revolves around um, anecdotes about how great your employees are and that's all you talk about, then I think there's a, a mismatch. That's a very poor example because sometimes the anecdotes about your, your employees are the best part of the, of the meeting. But if that's all there is, it kind of indicates that they're not, they're not really a firm that's interested in being purchased or, or really being a, a mature operating organization. Got it. Got it. In the example where you have uh, the guy or gal who says, yeah, yeah, uh, we're going to sell in 15.6 years. We're going to sell for eight times EBITDA. So that's our plan. <laughs> and you diarize, you know, like, okay, I'll mm -hmm. call it two years to see if, if, if that's still the case. What triggers people to change their mind? <laughs> what are the triggers that make them realize that I thought I was going to be 15 years and, and actually I'm interested in talking now, Randy? Uh, well, there's, there's positive ones and there's negative ones. Well, the positive might be, hey, we had a blowout two years. We're way ahead of schedule and we think now is the right time, right? We've pulled forward our horizon. Um, the negative ones are uh, we lost two of our biggest clients and my two senior salespeople have left and I'm, now I'm not convinced I can ever get to that threshold. So there's two, uh, and there might be just external factors. Um, my partner died. I'm getting a divorce. Um, you know, I've I've been diagnosed with an illness. So there might be some a third thing too. But taking that off the table, it's usually either a positive or negative piece. Obviously, the, the positive ones are great. We can engage in the conversation. Sometimes the negative conversations can happen too. It's just like as long as everyone's understanding that the kind of valuations they were expecting are not the kind of valuations they're going to get. Interesting, and I've never heard it framed quite so well, but. Positive, negative, and then obviously there, we've heard a lot about external events that can take place, you know, mm -hmm. tragedies and, and divorces, and all you know, all that stuff that we don't like to talk about, but happens unfortunately that causes people to need or want to sell. Or there might be like global plagues or planes flying into to buildings, yeah. or, right? There's all sorts of external factors beyond that that are out of your control as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you deal with those external factors <laughs> in a share purchase agreement, like? There are those black swan events that, like a global pandemic, that do come up, and they can cause it to be impossible for founders to meet their budget that they had originally sort of set out in a share purchase agreement or in a negotiation to sell the company. Do, do you guys sort of have kind of contemplate those sorts of black swan events? And if so, how do you how do you sort of deal with it in an SBA? Yeah, I think I think the idea is there's risk in the market for all of us, and mm -hmm. if there's another, you know, pick something, right? A meteor hits LA. Yeah. Um, you'd be suffering from that risk whether or not you were part of our company or not, right? So it's just part of being in business that's out there. So we don't deal with it specifically. You kind of continue to absorb that risk with whichever percentage of your deal has been rolled forward. 
right? So I think I don't we call it out. where it does become interesting is something happens during negotiations. So you're you've been uh, doing negotiations, you're in due diligence, and X happens, COVID happens. How do you deal with that? And I think we don't have hard rules on that, obviously, because it's a new situation each time. But I think having the the goodwill and faith to work through that, or to recognize that it's a deal killer, but do it in a, in a sort of honorable way, is a really important piece of the puzzle. What percentage of your deals that you get under LOI close? Like 90%. I can think of one deal offhand that didn't close. Um, and I can think of one deal that dragged out an extra year. But generally speaking, they close. And what would cause a deal to not close? Uh, the one that didn't close, it was basically material differences in the budget and the execution. And not like not rounding error differences, but like a zero differences, right? So the company wasn't the same company by the time we were finishing due diligence. And listen, I, I feel deeply for the founders. I think it was really um, unfortunate and unfortunate timing for them, but that's that was the reality. Um, in another case, as we got into it, um, our finance partners weren't comfortable with the books and the way that the accounting had been done. Um, and so there was a longer, got the deal done eventually, but it took a while for them to get a full year under their belt with kind of financials that uh, our financial advisors would sign off on. So kind of a different kind of context and probably unique to them. But that gives you some sense of where deals go sideways. Yeah. I want to go back to the interview I referenced earlier with this guy, Tyler Smith, who built that company Skyslope. He, mm-hmm. he um, structured the, the deal so that when he signed an LOI with a no shop clause, he gave them 25 days of exclusivity. Wow. And, and obviously, he knows that time kills all deals. And he wanted to hold their feet to the fire and say, if you, know, if you want to, I've got eight other offers. So if you want to do this deal, you got to close in 25 days. What would your reaction be to an entrepreneur who asked for 25 days of exclusivity? I don't know that I could get due diligence done. Um, to a level that would satisfy the board in 25 days. So it might just kill the deal. Um, and hey, listen, if you're an entrepreneur and you have that much demand that you're able to define that, like go for it, right? But I think it would probably squeeze us out. Um, when I sold my company, we did our, we were about 45 days of due diligence and it just about killed everyone involved. Um, I would hate to do it faster than that. So, you know, maybe there's exceptions. If you've got everything buttoned down and your pre-diligence is fantastic and there's not a question that we have from our accounting or legal team and you're really simple, you operate in one state in the U.S. as opposed to having like Brazilian operations which require <laughs> uh, Brazilian legal advisors, maybe, but that's really short. That's That would be tough to marshal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so give me a sense of why Valtech. So, mm-hmm. You know, as you, as you mentioned, a lot of your deals are competitive. They have an M and A banker. They, there's other, there's a litany of other sort of marketing services, hold codes, et cetera. Like, I'd be curious to know when you win, why, and my follow up question is going to be when you don't, why not? So let's start with why you win. Like, what's your, why do people choose you over, you know, Omnicom or whatever, whatever other you know, sure. marketing yeah, services? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so first of all. Let's assume the financials are roughly the same because they probably sure. are, right? Um, maybe a strategic buyer comes in at 10 times our cost, sell to them, right? We don't want that deal. Trust me, go, go with them. But if everything else is equal, then I think why founders are attracted to Valtech is we're not a holding company, right? We don't operate a whole bunch of separate companies. Like we're one unified global company with lots of variation at the regional level. So you kind of have the, some of the best of both worlds. It has its own complications. Uh, you have to believe the Valtech story. Right, and our track record. Like, we will find we will be a good place for your employees. 
Um, we look for value matchup too. So you seem to care about the same things collectively as we care about collectively, and you have to feel good about that. So um, founders who, because of the size of companies we deal with, they often have very deep personal connections with their their employees, right? They want to make sure they land in a good place. So I think we can we can offer that for the right kind of companies. And two or two or three values. What 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 would you say are the two or three like highest priority? Yeah, we we talk about, about uh, our formal values are share, dare, and care, and it's fairly simple because we have to operate in twenty nine languages, so they have to translate across all those. Um, it, Sorry, it's share share. Dare and care. Got it. Got it. Right, and that's it is pretty simplistic, but you do have to translate those across like twenty nine languages. And we do a formal exercise of, of seeing how the uh, values, as described by the prospective acquisition, line up with our values, and whether or not there's a way for us to 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 formally say, yeah, these are, are how do you do specific. that? I mean, those you know are what? very subjective. Absolute values. Like and and the, pa- you, the paper exercise we go through, I'm not sure is actually worth the time sometime because like we've all sat in meetings where on the board, uh, the values say, you know, the plaque that says we value collaboration. And you're Teamwork. Saying, exactly. And like, <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, and it's, just, it's just, it's just a terrible situation where everybody's like yeah. political and it's awful. So yeah, the difference between the expressed values and the real values are different. So where this comes in is we do a straw poll of our people midway through due diligence who've actually met. So not the senior execs, but the next level down. Once we get to the point that we're actually interviewing kind of their senior management, we do a straw poll of like, are these people you'd like to work with? And if the answer is positive, then we're pretty clear that they're kind of on track. And if the answer is no, I never want to talk to this person ever again, probably not a good fit. Um, it's surprising how much information you can get, how much your people know from one or two meetings. It's a matter of you have to extract that in ways that's actionable. That's really fascinating. I've never heard that. I'd love to dig more in there. So, okay. So, Strapple. So, let me see if I understand it. So, like, you, uh, you kind of open up the opportunity, right? That you punt it over to the M and A team, deal team that um, you know, gets the gets the founder under LOI, signs the yep. the uh, the no shop clause, et cetera, and then you're into diligence. And during diligence, it's usually no longer the, the very senior corporate dev person. It's kind of the, the next level down, the analysts who are doing the, you know, like the interviewing management and getting all the, the ducks in a row. And, and, and operational. So because we're buying operating companies that are services companies, right? Like their senior technical person is going to have to work with our senior technical person. So they'll talk to each other, yeah. right? If they've got a creative director, they'll talk to our creative director. If they've got a QA shop, they'll talk to our QA. So it's that, uh, it's that next level of management down. So, so it's management. It's not just the deal team. It's no, no. Manager. It's not the deal team at all. Important. Sorry. It's the okay. operational due diligence team. And of course, because we're of our structure, that's at least as important to us as yeah, the financial so. and legal okay. due diligence, right? So it's those people who can quickly evaluate and and give you a thumbs up, thumbs down. Got it. So it's it's the it's the yeah it's creative director A and creative director B. Got it. so and and how do you execute that poll? Is it literally like a like a physical thumbs up on a Zoom call, or is it a is it an electronic survey that gets sent out? Like how do you do that? We've done all of the above. Like I don't want to pretend this is too deeply structured. It, it's okay. more of a like we're all on the phone. Like, is there, how does everybody feel? Are we like, feeling okay? Is yeah. there like a gigantic no go? Is there? And you'll get a real quick. It does not take long. Like when you've got those people on the phone, because most of them are uh, experienced enough to have opinions that matter. Yeah, and able to overlook like individual personality quirks and get to the heart of like you know how they operate. Yeah, yeah. And then the same question is 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 on the flip side. Wh- why do you lose a deal? Mm-hmm. Like under what conditions would you not win? Uh, so we've lost. Uh, like, like there's an infinite number of reasons you lose, and you're never always entirely sure why you've lost. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes to somebody else, you're more valuable. 
Um, and that's just a reality. Like if you're worth more to them than us, then they're going to pay more. And as an entrepreneur, you might want to take that deal. You might want to look at the deal structure, but you, you want to take a look at that deal. So that's probably the most common way. Um, in some cases, people are looking for a different kind of experience. So if you're a services company and you're selling to a product company, for example, and your personal career interests are in um, growing inside a product company, that might be a motivator to like just just do that, even though it's a competitive deal and we all like each other. It's like, no, like what I really want to do with my life is become a, a product development person. Then, you know, maybe that's a way that we've lost deals. I can think of that one. Um, we, we win more than our share of deals. So I'm actually searching to figure out some that we've lost. Well, that's that good. Financial. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I really appreciate you spending the time getting us inside your head as an acquirer. I think it's a fascinating uh, role that you have and challenging. And I think I'm super grateful for your candor and letting us sort of peek inside your mind. And uh, I'm grateful for that. If people wanted to reach out to you, Randy, where would they do that? What's the best place to connect with you? So linkedin.com slash Randy Woods should reach me. Um, and of course, you can always reach me at Valtech too, randy.woods at valtech.com. Um, and there's probably a thousand other socials you can find me on too, but those are probably the two easiest ways to reach me. Awesome. And we'll put those in the show notes at builtthecell.com. Randy, thanks for doing this. Hey, not at all. It's been great. Appreciate it. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Randy. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, you can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, where there you'll have a chance to leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews truly help our show grow and get in front of more business owners just like you. Also a reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, you can do so over at our YouTube channel. You can find us at Built to Sell Radio, where there you can watch the video portion of this podcast. I truly think that watching the interview as opposed to listening to it just adds a different flavor and element to the show. Also, if you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them. Some of the best guests like Randy have come from nomination. So if you want to nominate a guest, you can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you'll have a chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including definitions and resources to help you better understand what a put option is, you can head over to our show notes page, which again can be found at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. Mm-hmm.